Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. Joshua, chapter 8. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 29, continuing in our series through the book of Joshua. Um, Yeah, so one of the lessons that I learned uh, after I moved out on my own my freshman year of college was that every home needs three important things. WD-40, super glue, and duct tape. I have found that most issues can be temporarily, if not permanently, dealt with with the proper application of one of those three things or a combination of those three things. WD-40 will get things moving when they're stuck. Duct tape will make sure that things that are moving that aren't supposed to be moving will stop moving. And when a little more finesse is needed, superglue comes to the rescue. Now, now that Ellie and I have a budding two-year-old, I am learning to appreciate especially those second two items. Uh, when a toy gets broken, I have to come up with an answer. And I have found that the answer, the solution, is often one of those two things. Uh, you, can, you can fix a squeaky door with a couple sprays of WD-40. You can mend a toy with a couple strategically placed drops of superglue. Don't even get me started on all the ways you can use duct tape. But however innovative you or I may be with those three things, we can all agree that there are some things which, when broken, we are powerless to repair. You can't glue a broken promise back together. WD-40 won't quiet a soul that has been broken. And duct tape can't bind a broken heart together. Last week, we read about the great and terrible sin of the man Achan. Achan broke God's covenant. He broke God's perfect law. And his transgression placed a stain on him, on his family, and on the entire nation of Israel. How do you fix something like that? How do you fix a broken covenant, a broken promise, a broken relationship with the God of the universe? Well, that's the question we want to answer this morning in our time in Joshua 8. It's a question that matters to us because we are all transgressors like Achan. We saw last week as we explored Achan's sin and why it was so terrible, how it reflects the rebellion that exists in the heart of every man, woman, and child since the fall of Adam and Eve when they first sinned in the Garden of Eden. Just as Achan's sin stained all of Israel and placed them at odds with God, which is why they were then defeated when they came against the city of Ai, so Adam's sin has stained us all. It's a stain that we cannot remove from ourselves, a broken relationship that we cannot mend because sin not only breaks us and pollutes us, it kills us. We need the intervention of the one who has the right tools to fix all of this. We need God, the great covenant fixer, and that is going to be the focus of our, of our time this morning as we see how God worked to reestablish his covenant promises with Israel to restore to them the, the land that he had promised to give to them, the land of Canaan. So let's begin this morning, as we always do, by reading our text. Uh, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading from Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all of the fighting men with you, 
and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they came out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them, and they shall come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing away from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of the ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encamp- uh, so they stationed the forces. The main encampment was to the north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. As soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So, when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled into the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all of the people of Ai. 
But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took for their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, before we jump into the details of our text this morning, I think it is helpful to just outline the structure of this chapter first. And the reason I want to do that is because this chapter is doing more than just telling you about what went down when Israel came to Ai the second time. You've got to read chapter 8 in the context of everything else that's going on in this book, which is why we're, we start at the beginning and we're reading our whole way through. And so we want to read this with, with right perspective. When you read chapter 8 in the context of what everything else has been going on here, you realize that this chapter is telling you about how God restored Israel and kept his covenant promises to them which he had made to their fathers. Achan made a mess of things. This chapter, chapter 8, is about God's solution to the mess that Achan made. In Joshua 8, God systematically undoes the effects of Achan's sin. He restores, he cleanses, he comforts, and it all culminates in the end of the chapter where Joshua and the people renew the covenant with God on Mount Ebal. Now, we'll get to that part of the story next week. Uh, Right now, our focus is going to be on how God went about bringing Israel back on track into a right relationship with him to bless them with the Lamb. So our main idea this morning, if you've got the the sheet you'll see, is that God is the great covenant fixer. God is the great covenant fixer. During our time this morning, in our passage, I want to show you three ways that God goes about fixing the mess that we make with our sin. Joshua 8 shows us three things. It shows us that God restores us. God restores us. Secondly, it shows us that God protects us. God protects us. And finally, we see that God calms us. God calms us. Well, first we want to look at how God works to restore us uh, in, the, in light, in the aftermath of a broken covenant. Since the beginning of the book of Joshua, we have seen a lot of confidence, a lot of courage from Joshua and the people. But here, in the aftermath of Achan's sin and Israel's defeat at Ai, that courage is at an all-time low. You might remember back in chapter 7, verse verse 5, that when Israel was defeated by the men of Ai, our author tells us that the hearts of the people melted within them and became as water. The success of the conquest of Canaan is at this point standing on the edge of a knife. Although Joshua's prayer in the aftermath of Israel's defeat is a bit dramatic, it shows us rightly that Joshua really understood that if God did not fight for Israel, then Israel was as good as dead. After Achan was dealt with according to his sin and justice was upheld, we're, turned that, we're told that God turned from his burning anger. God did not remain angry with Israel forever. When his righteous justice was met, he was quick to restore Israel back to the promises that he had made to them in his covenant. 
The evidence for this comes in the opening verse of our chapter, in, in, in verse 1, where we see that the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. It's like we're back at the beginning when God first called Joshua. More than that, it feels like we're actually at the walls of, the, of Jericho when God says, take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Now, there's this important connection between what God says to Joshua and the people in the aftermath of Achan's sin and what he had first said to them when they came against Jericho. That connection is intended to show Joshua and the people that their guilt has been removed and that God's relationship with them has been made right again. God knew Israel's fragile state. And so we see as he prepares them to go up against Ai again, he does so with, with loving care, calling them to trust him that he will give them the victory. Israel got burned at Ai the first time because Achan had broken God's covenant not because God was powerless to defeat Ai the first time. Now that Achan's sin has been removed, God is ready to continue giving Israel the benefits of his covenant promise. And so his, his instructions for the battle of Ai are a call again to Israel to trust him as he gives them the victory. Now, when we look at God's battle plan for Ai, we see it is vastly different than what he told them to do at Jericho. It's actually kind of the move you would expect to read in a, in a, in a book on tactics. Uh, it's a classic ambush move uh, designed to draw the men of Ai out of the city so that the armies of Israel can then surround them and destroy them in the same place where they had been defeated before. Now, our author repeats the information about this battle plan a couple times. In verse 2, God simply tells Joshua to set up an ambush behind the city, but we get a deep, more detailed sense of that command in verses 4 through 8, with other information leading up to the actual battle in verse 3, and then a repetition of that in verses three through 19, or three, sorry, 9 through 13. Now, this passage, as we read it, because it's so repetitive, it's a little confusing because it keeps revisiting certain details of the, of the command and, and the actual battle uh, and, and, and leading us to the point where we're starting to wonder, well, where are they and what they're doing? Where are all these people standing? Uh, how many people are here? And there's a little discrepancy here as to actually how many people are in the ambush force, how many people were Joshua and the main force as they attacked the city. And so it's a little confusing. On the basis, and so because of the confusion, I got just, for all of you grammarians out here, which I don't, April's not here, so maybe no one cares about this, but there's just a couple things here. On the basis of the grammatical structure of this, of this text, it's best to understand that verses 3 through 9 are intended to explain the main details about how Joshua and the people prepared as they went to, uh, to bring battle to Ai. And then uh, we're to understand that verses 11 through, ter through 13 are a sort of flashback that explains those details a little more further, a little more further, and expands those details out a little bit more. The structure of the chapter may seem a little choppy and repetitive to us, but it's it's intentional, and it's intentional because it's trying to draw attention to the meticulous way that Joshua and the armies of Israel went about in obeying God's battle plan, and then this structure emphasizes that it was indeed God who was the one who accomplished Israel's victory at Ai. 
Israel may have fought the battle with a different strategy than what they did at Jericho, but they were victorious for the same reason, because God fought for them and because they trusted his word. In verse 3, we are told that Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. He commanded them to lie in ambush behind the city until the next day when he and the main Israelite force came against Ai in broad daylight to draw them people out. In verse 5, Joshua says that he and all the people who are with him uh, will approach the city. And the plan is that when the men of Ai see this again, they will draw them away and that they will, they will flee as the earlier 3,000 men had fled. And that it's at that moment that the ambush force is to rise up, take the city, and to set it on fire to show that they do indeed have possession of the city. Now, there's a little confusion in the summary that we get in verse 12 because uh, while our author explains that the main force was to the north of the city and the ambush force was to the west, he only mentions that Joshua set 5,000 men in ambush between Ai and Bethel. And so we're left wondering, well, was it 30,000 or was it 5,000? It does seem pretty amazing to think that 30,000 soldiers could slip into an ambush so close to a small town that would have been alert as AI would have been. That's led some scholars to think that maybe the main force, the force that Joshua led, is, is the number that the author is thinking about when he says that there were 30,000 men and that the ambush force was only 5,000 men. Other scholars think that maybe this, there may have been an early scribal error as the original was being copied down, but really there's no evidence for that, and so that's not really a good explanation. Uh, one explanation is that the 5,000 men were a separate ambush force that was set in anticipation that the men of Bethel were going to come help the city of Ai. Uh, to be honest, I don't think there's a very satisfying explanation of that, so you can decide what your best theory is. And, and, and go there. Uh, I lean towards thinking that maybe the, the ambush force was 30,000 men simply because God commanded Joshua to take all of the fighting men with him to Ai. And we know for a fact that Israel had more than 35,000 men because we're told that the fighting men just of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were 40,000 people at the time when Israel first crossed over into the land. So, taking into account how meticulous Joshua was to always obey God uh, and, and how meticulous he was in this particular battle, I just can't see him leaving the majority of his fighting force back in the camp of Israel when God told him to take them all. So the big thing we want to focus on here isn't the number of who was where, but on what God was doing when he gave this command to Joshua and the people. Why would God arrange for Israel to fight like this when his instructions were so different than what he had told them to do at the Battle of Jericho? Well, the answer to that question helps us understand the greater work of covenant keeping and covenant fixing that God was doing when he gave Israel uh, victory at, at, at Ai. When God gave these marching orders to Joshua for Israel, he did so with regard to Israel's broken courage. Days earlier, Achan's sin had put the entire camp in a state of fear and discouragement. The victory of Jericho didn't mean much at all to them if they couldn't secure the rest of the land that God had called them to go in and take. And so God dealt gently with the Israelites in the wake of the trauma of Achan's sin as an act of his grace and his tender mercy. Although Ai was a small town 
we see that God sent the full might of Israel's army so that those fighting men would see that God would indeed bring them victory as, as he said he would when they first crossed into, over the Jordan River. Israel, with her armies, was in need of courage. And so God instructed Joshua as he did so that the people would be renewed in, the, in knowing that he was with them and that he was with them to fight their battles and to keep his promise. I think that God told Joshua to bring the entire army with him, not because Ai was just that hard of a nut to crack, but so that Israel's warriors would have a front row seat to see how God was in fact with them to give them the rest of the land. With the stain of Achan's sin removed, God was ready to give the people the blessings that he originally said he was going to give them. Uh, John Calvin observes that God did not lay a greater burden on Israel than they were able to bear until they had recovered from their excessive panic and could execute his commands with gladness and joy. The priority of God's strategy here was not to defeat Ai with Joshua's superior cunning or the strength of Israel's army, but to prove to a people who had been touched by the toxin of sin that their guilt truly had been atoned for and that he was with them to secure total victory. That's why the first thing God says to Joshua in this battle plan is, do not fear and do not be dismayed. I have given into the hand, into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. Israel was victorious at Jericho because God fought for them. And they were victorious at Ai the second time for the same reason. When Achan sinned, he put the entire nation in peril because he broke God's covenant. It wasn't as if God, or it wasn't as if, uh, it wasn't that Achan had disobeyed God and it wasn't just his, his personal sin. It was that his disobedience broke Israel's relationship with God. Sin is not just a bending of the rules. It is an assault against God. Before Israel could go any further, before they could receive a single foot of ground in Canaan, that broken relationship had to be restored. The promised land is called the promised land because it was ensured by the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his offspring. Achan put all of that into jeopardy because God will not give the blessings of his favor to unrepentant sinners. Before Israel could receive the blessings of God's promise, the broken covenant had to be fixed. The key feature, if you look at a biblical covenant, and what the Bible, when the Bible starts using this, this word covenant, the key feature of that thing is that it's more, the thing that makes it more than just a contract is that it's a promise built on a relationship. In a marriage covenant, a husband and a wife bind themselves with certain promises that are driven by love for the other person, by love for their, their spouse. And so marriage is built on self-sacrifice. It is other person oriented. In a similar way, God's covenant with his people is driven by a relationship. God doesn't make contracts. He makes covenants. He, he says he will be their God and that they will be his people. The subsequent blessings of that covenant are nothing if that relationship isn't there. The victory of Ai was a sign to Joshua and to Israel about God's covenant restoration. It showed in a physical way that God's righteous justice had been upheld. 
It showed that God was with Israel again, and it announced that the relationship between God and Israel had been fixed. Whenever future generations of Israelites looked at the great heap of stones that stood over the ruins of Ai, they would be reminded of both of the consequences of sin and God's mighty power to restore his people to a right relationship with him. The battle of Ai then stands as a monument for all time and for all people of the great power of God to, to fix what Adam broke to unite us in a new and better covenant that was, that was secured by the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This, Paul says, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The evidence for you and me, the evidence that Jesus' blood was effective, that, that Jesus really did restore what Adam broke and what we break every time we sin, is the empty tomb. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, that empty tomb stands as a monument for all time that the blood of Jesus has made us clean and that his sacrifice was effective and will be forever enough to redeem us from our unrighteousness. How do you know? How do you know that God's covenant is true? How do you know that he has really restored what we broke? You know it because Jesus is not in the grave. But he reigns in heaven until the day when he will make all things new and reign forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, what I am saying to you right now, is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be, mis to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Paul goes on to say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, glorious three-letter word, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The empty tomb of Jesus shows us that God is the God who restores. It causes us to hope, not in what we're able to do, not in our righteousness, but to hope in a righteousness that is not our own, in a forgiveness that we do not deserve, in a love that is deeper than any ocean, and to live with confidence that just as God was with Israel to restore them, to, to give them AI as he said he would, that he is with us to restore us and to give us the inheritance that he has secured for us through the blood of King Jesus. So God is the God who restores. God is also the God who protects. 
we see that the battle plan that God gave Joshua worked. When the king of Ai saw the forces of Israel gathered around his town, he also gathered his his men and decided he was going to go beat them away just as he had before. They went after them. He did not know, we are told, that there was an ambush waiting for him. He thought that he would drive Israel from the field the same way he and his men had done only days earlier. But he was wrong. He thought he was going out to fight the armies of Israel. He did not consider that he was fighting against the Lord of all the earth. In verse 15, we see that according to plan, Joshua and the main force pretended to be beaten as the 3,000 had been beaten before them. They fled in the direction of the wilderness. All of the men of Ai and all the men of the neighboring city of Bethel came out to pursue them. And we're told that not a man was left to defend the city. It was at this point that the Lord said to Joshua in verse 18, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua did so. When he did so, the men who were waiting in ambush behind the city saw what Joshua, this, this signal, and they rushed into the city, took it, and set it on fire. Verse 20 tells us then that the the men of Ai looked back and they saw smoke coming from their city and they realized their mistake. The ambush force closed in on them from one side. The main force turned around and, and enclosed them from the other. They had no power to flee this way or that and so they were destroyed. Forces of Ai and Bethel were sandwiched between Israel and its forces. Though they tried to flee into the wilderness, we see that Israel struck them down. Not a man survived or escaped. Only the king of Ai was, allowed, was left alive long enough to be brought before Joshua, who we then understand from verse 29 that uh, Joshua killed him and then hung his body on a tree until evening when he took it down in accordance with the Mosaic law. Notice Joshua, how meticulous he is to follow God's law. He took that body down, and then Joshua and Israel did to Ai just as they had done to the city of Jericho. The men and the women of the city were put to death in accordance with the command of God, and in total we read that 12,000 men and women were killed that day. We read in verse 26 that Joshua did not draw back his hand with the javelin that the Lord had commanded him to to uh, outstretch until Ai had been totally devoted to destruction. Now there are only three cities in the book of Joshua that were treated this way. Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 11. The destruction though of Ai was permanent. That's different than Jericho. Jericho, after a couple hundred years, was built again. No one ever built again on the mount where Ai was located. In fact, scholars today debate about where it's possibly is because they have a hard time just finding the ruins. While the the way that Ai was destroyed feels brutal, we must recognize that the same reasons God commanded the annihilation of Jericho are at work here in Ai. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he does not allow wickedness to go on unpunished and unchecked. The Bible tells us that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. We see that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. The people living in Ai enjoyed 400 years of God's mercy and his forbearance. But their hearts were hard. And when they saw Israel coming into the land, they did not hope in God. They did not repent. 
Instead, they hardened their hearts in unbelief and took a sword, a literal sword, to God's chosen people. They despised the blessings of Abraham. They attacked the apple of God's eye. And the result is that they were destroyed as an act of righteous justice. This chapter teaches us to trust in God's power to forgive and restore sinners to himself. It also shows us that God is at work preemptively to warn us and to protect us from the sin that we ourselves strive against. You know, Achan's punishment looks exactly like what happened to the Canaanites in Jericho and to the king of Ai. They were killed, they were burned with fire, and they were buried under a pile of rocks. It is exact. Achan became like the cursed things that he stole. If that seems brutal to us, if, if Achan's fate seems brutal, if Ai and Jericho seems brutal, it is only because we do not see sin for the heinous thing that it really is. After all, the Bible warns us not to fear the death of the body so much as we fear the wrath of God that he pours out on those who are in hell. God cares for his people with an immovable, steadfast love. And so he works to set them free from their sin and to warn us and to protect us from that. Not only does he restore his people to a right relationship with him when we break that, but he also actively works to protect us from that. We can see how God is at work to protect his people in three ways from the story of Israel and their dealings of Ai. First, we see that God protects us by using the afflictions of his people to secure their holiness and their contentment in him. God uses our afflictions to, to, work, to work for our holiness, to secure our holiness. Why did God allow Israel to be defeated at Ai in the first time? Why, why did God allow that to happen? Why did he afflict them by letting the king of Ai have his way with them at first? It was because there was sin in the camp of Israel. The covenant was broken. God could have dealt with Achan's sin privately. But as we saw last week, there is no such thing as a private sin. God did not punish Israel, however, the way he punished Ai. Whereas he gave Israel over to their sins, he did not allow them to be totally destroyed. He disciplined them. God allows his people to suffer, and he uses our suffering to shape and to hone us after the image of Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5, uh, verse 8, that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He goes on in chapter 12 to remind us that since we have been made sons with Christ, we ought therefore to rejoice for the discipline that we receive from God, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. The Bible does not call us to rejoice in trouble, but to rejoice when we do suffer, because we know that our suffering will produce the steadfast endurance of faith that Christ had. And that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we know we are filling up the very afflictions of Christ in our bodies. It hurt when God disciplined Israel for the way that the covenant had been broken. It hurt. But it is through such temporal affliction that God works to bring his people into an eternal weight of glory. And that is something to be treasured. 
Friends, God did not waste Israel's suffering, and neither will he waste yours. You are precious to him. So precious that not one hair can fall from your head apart from the will of God. And if it is God's will for us to suffer, then we ought to rejoice. Because we know that God really does order all things for our good and for his glory to, per- to perfect us and to make us worthy and, and per- to prepare us in holiness for an eternal glory the way gold is refined through fire. The second way we see that God works to protect us, to protect his people, is we see that God justly afflicts those who afflict his people. God justly afflicts those who afflict his people. When God called Abraham and he made his covenant with him in Genesis 12, he said that he would bless those who blessed him and that he would curse those who dishonored him. The tears of God's people do not fall to the ground in vain. The death of God's holy ones is precious in his sight. Hebrews 10 verse 30 says, We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then we are told it is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of the living God. Paul told the church in Thessalonica, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since God, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The king of Ai sealed his doom when he led his troops into battle against Israel. God used him for a moment to discipline his people. But then we see that God took the instrument of his discipline and he broke it over his knee. When God's God's people suffer, he uses that suffering for our purification, for our sanctification. We know that our suffering will not last forever. But the justice that God pours out on those who afflict his saints will be like the destruction that came on Ai. And that is something to be feared. The third way that we see God at work in this passage to protect his people is we see that God protects us by giving us a view of those who persist in wickedness against him. The king of Ai enjoyed a certain amount of success and victory, but that did not, he did not enjoy it long, did he? Sin promises to fulfill us. It promises to satisfy us, but in the end, it brings death, just as it did to the king of Ai. Even so, even so, we still desire sin for what it seems to offer us. Resisting sin becomes even harder when people who give in to it seem to thrive, like the king of Ai did. Asaph, uh, and I think the most beautiful picture of this, Asaph talks about this in Psalm 73. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Admit it, the people who seem to flourish in this world aren't pure in heart. It's really, really rare to find somebody at the top of the food chain who's, who's really seeking to walk with God. 
The wicked have it made in this life, and it's so tempting to join them. Evil comes easy. It comes naturally. Asaph says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. He says, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The thing is that the prosperity of the wicked in this world is their undoing. It doesn't always seem that way from our limited point of view. That's why we need God to guard us. And so... God shows us the end of the wicked so that we will know. Who doesn't want to be like the king of Ai when he's winning? Who doesn't want to win? But, but the king of Ai's arrogance put him in a slippery place. He fell to ruin. He became a curse. His body was hung on a tree. His city was burned. His riches were given to another. The wicked may thrive for a day, but they will dry up in the sun of God's judgment. And God's covenant mercy is at work always, sometimes through our afflictions, to show us the greater inheritance that he has provided for us if we will only wait on him. Which brings us to consider our final point this morning. We see that God calms us. God calms us by giving us a better inheritance. Ai was destroyed. It was burned up in a similar way to Jericho. But Ai was not devoted to the Lord the same way that Jericho was. In verse 27, we see that Israel got to take the livestock and the spoil of Ai for themselves. And this was according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. Isn't it something to think that if Achan had only had patience patience if he'd only patiently waited on god he would have avoided his just punishment and instead he would have received the bounty of god's blessings just like the rest of the israelites did achan coveted what had been rightly declared to be the lord's he broke covenant he stole from god and he traded the abiding riches of a relationship with god for temporary pleasures and instant gratification that he didn't even really get to enjoy because he, he hid them under his tent Achan's heart, blinded by unbelief, was unable to see how God was going to give Israel far more than he took from Jericho. As the great covenant fixer, we've seen how God restores us, how he works to protect us. Now we see how God secures us and calms us by calling us to a greater inheritance and a greater hope than what this temporary life has to offer. God's love is such that he has secured an inheritance for his people through Christ in himself that is eternal and that is worth waiting on. Verse 27 mentions that Israel took the plunder of Ai as the Lord commanded Joshua. God commanded it. That command comes all the way back in verse 2 where we see the... the, the uh, we see it, either side of this chapter that the plunder of Ai is functioning as a sort of bookend for this chapter. God said he's going to give it to them and then he does. God begins by assuring Israel that he'll be with them. He tells them how he's going to give them victory over their enemies and then he calms them by assuring them of the blessings that he has set apart for them to have. The rest of chapter 8 is unfolding how God accomplished all those things. It might seem like a minor detail to read that Israel took all these spoils of war but verse 27 is like the cherry on top, the crowning of God's work of covenant restoration. God did not hold back the blessings that he had promised. 
He didn't wait for Israel to prove themselves to him. To, he didn't wait for them to claw their way back into favor. If, if your child were to, um, to, to, to disobey you, you don't immediately trust them again, right? There's consequences. They have to earn that trust back. And yet God is lavishly giving Israel blessings, even, in, even after they had broken covenant with him. Like the, like the prodigal son's father, God forgave them, restored them, and then assured them of his grace, giving them the riches of Ai, as he promised. Israel is back on track. They're receiving the benefits of faith in God as he fights for them, as he enforces his righteous justice, and as he works to secure for them a place where he will make his presence dwell amongst them. Although God is meticulously at work and diligent to provide for every need that we have, according to his steadfast love, he does not always give us what we may desire in the time that we may desire him to do so. He cares too much about us to let ourselves gratify ourselves in lesser things. And some of the lessons of faith um, that he teaches must be learned through patience. The story of Ai and the blessings that God gave Israel when he made them victorious stand as evidence for us that the blessings that God promises are worth waiting on. For many years, David waited on God to make him the king of Israel as he had promised. As we read earlier, uh, from Psalm 37, if we read further on in verse 34, David says, Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. David says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. On the other hand, David says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The call of every believer is to wait patiently on the Lord as he fulfills his very great purposes. The benefits of the covenant of Christ are greater and higher than what this world is able to offer us. In fact, the reality is that all this fallen world has to offer us, it's trouble. God calls us to wait patiently on him and on his timing as he shapes us like a master potter into vessels that are fitting to be filled with his righteousness and to dwell with him as trophies of the grace of Christ in, the, in his presence in heaven. The great benefit of the gospel isn't that following Jesus will get you earthly blessings. Rather, he brings us a greater inheritance of eternal life, life that is untouched, unmarred by brokenness and sin. He calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to set, to set up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot and do not break in and steal. Because it is guarded, insured by the precious blood of the covenant that Christ shed on the cross for us. Impatience will leave you vulnerable to sin. We must learn to content ourselves in a hope that will not disappoint. Because we serve a God who never, ever fails to deliver on his promises. The secret to contentment isn't having the sheer willpower to wait. 
Some of us are more patient than others. The secret to being content is not having a will to wait. The secret to finding contentment is learning to be content now in nothing less than God himself. When our greatest pleasure is knowing God and being known by him as his children, then we can endure anything and our hearts will be calm because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of this God. Our hearts are tempted to worry because the things we love have been placed in jeopardy. When our hearts are gripped in fear, when our courage melts within us, let us calm ourselves by coming back to the new and better covenant that God has established on our behalf through the work of our King. Then we will have strength to continue to fight, to run the race, to seek the prize of eternal glory with Him that is truly worth treasuring. Sin makes a mess of things. But God is stronger than sin because the blood of Jesus is more excellent than our sins are foul. God is the great covenant fixer, the one who restores the broken and the sinner, the one who fights to protect his people, and the one who calms us by securing an eternal hope and an eternal glory that is beyond compare. As we look forward to another week, we can stand because we know the one who has forgiven us, we know the one who sustains us, and we know the one who will glorify us in him when he comes in the full glory of his kingdom. That is something worth treasuring. Let's pray.